0: This is Sam Schwartz and Sean Bull with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: Incumbent Governor U.S. Senator Ron Johnson and his Democratic challenger, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, sparred on Friday night in their first debate. The two candidates split on a multitude of issues, including marijuana legalization, inflation policy, the future of abortion rights in Wisconsin, gun control, and crime and safety concerns. The two candidates mostly stuck to their campaign scripts, reports the Associated Press. The two candidates will have their second and final debate on Thursday.
0: Over 12,000 Wisconsinites may have had their private patient information leaked by the State Department of Health Services. That's after a presentation from the department emailed out included protected health information. The presentation was also posted online, so the information could have been accessed by anyone. The possible leaked data includes name, date of birth, social security number, and Medicaid ID number. Affected Wisconsinites should receive a notification in the mail. The Department of Health Services says it will continue to investigate the incident.
1: A group of UW-Madison students camped out on Friday, some for over 20 hours. But the students weren't there for a tailgate. They were there to try their chances at securing affordable housing. The students were camped out for applications for rental units run by J. Michael Real Estate, a landlord company that runs several apartment buildings in Madison, mostly in the Langdon Street area. The applications were for the 2023-2024 school year and were taken on a first-come, first-served basis, leading some students to camp out overnight to be there when the offices opened at 8am on Friday. That's according to a report from the Wisconsin State Journal. The housing situation for renters on the isthmus is becoming dire, with several apartment buildings already announcing up to 20% rent increases for the next year, reports the Daily Cardinal, one of the campus newspapers. J. Michael Real Estate announced that they had run out of vacancies for that type of housing by Friday afternoon.
0: Fitchburg Mayor Aaron Richardson says he's not planning to run for re-election this spring. Richardson is currently the Democratic nominee for Wisconsin Treasurer in this fall's election, but Richardson said that no matter the results come November, he will not seek another term as mayor. Richardson said he was proud of his accomplishments as mayor of Fitchburg, and touted his successes on issues like home ownership, green energy, and inclusion.
1: The Women's Artist Forward Fund announced their 2022 Forward Art Prize winners for women-identifying artists who reside in Dane County. The two winners, Katherine Steichen-Rosing and Laleda G, will receive $10,000 as part of the award so that they may pursue their own artistic visions free of specific obligations or demands. The fund also announced five finalists who received a $1,000 award.
0: The Madison Metropolitan School District announced an expansion to a program designed to help staff learn how to work with students who are neurodiverse, according to the Capital Times. The program for inclusion and neurodiversity education was piloted last year at two elementary schools for $20,000. The school board approved an additional $85,000 to add to two middle schools, to add two middle schools and a high school to the program. The program mostly consists of training for educators and other staff so that they may be better equipped to help students who are new or diverse, like students on the autism spectrum or those who are experiencing issues with executive function. The Associate Superintendent for Student Services says that staff feedback on the program has been glowing, but also worries that staff do not feel like they have the extra hours to undergo further training. And now, on to today's top stories. Two years ago, the Police Civilian
1: Oversight Board was tasked with finding and hiring an independent police monitor to investigate police complaints, recommend policy changes, and have the ability to subpoena the Madison Police Department. And after a botched attempt at hiring last year, the Oversight Board has announced their pick for Madison's first independent police monitor. WORT
2: producer Nate Weggehout has the story. John Tate II has been named as Madison's first independent police monitor. The decision to go with Tate may finally put an end to the years-long process of attempting to hire an independent police monitor. The city of Madison first created the position after the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, along with the Police Civilian Oversight Board, who would be tasked with hiring the monitor. The role of the independent police monitor will carry some unique responsibilities and powers, like investigating complaints against police and subpoenaing records. The independent monitor will also recommend policy changes and engage with the community. The Oversight Board had originally estimated that an independent monitor would be hired in October of last year. Instead, the board offered the position to Madison Civil Rights Administrator Byron Bishop on December 16th of that year. Less than one month later, Bishop turned down the position after past workplace allegations were brought up against him. And so, the process had to once again start from the beginning. Almost four months after the position was opened, the city had narrowed it down to just four candidates. Last month, the Oversight Board held a candidate forum, introducing those candidates to the community, giving the public less than a week to give their thoughts. Shadaira Kilfoy-Flores is the chair of the Oversight Board. She says that she understands that people were frustrated that the process took as long as it
3: did.
4: It's been a little a little difficult, you know, people asking what's going on and not being able to, you know, give a, a firm answer has been really
5: kind of difficult, you know, because a lot of, taking a lot of time and energy for, and a lot of support from the community,
4: I understand why, why you know, why we had to not so much proceed with caution, but just, you know, take take things one step at a time, it's been, you know, very important to to make sure that everything's being done properly. And, yeah, and so I'm just really glad that we're able to move forward here.
2: Rachel Kincaid, who also serves on the Oversight Board, says that it was important for them to do the job right so that they could find the perfect candidate.
4: Well, it, it took a long time, but this is a very important, you know, considering that this is the only one in, in the state, you know, and we're still forging ground. Other states have them, but not every state does. And that it's so important to get the right person in that place for it to be successful. And so I am hoping that through this process that, that took so long, that the reason why it was to get the right person in, into the position that can do the job.
2: Today, the Civilian Oversight Board announced their pick. John Tate II. He is the current president of the Racine City Council. Until recently, Tate was also the chair of the state's parole commission. Tate left the position in June after a man who killed his wife in front of their children in the late 1990s was granted parole. Governor Evers later asked for his parole to be revoked and asked for Tate's resignation. Tate just recently moved to Madison. During his public interview last month, Tate described why he saw the position of an independent monitor as valuable. And in those roles, my objective has always been to identify the inequity and identify the systems and identify how we can shift those systems to better serve the populations that are within them. As I'm taking the perspective of understanding people in their environment, the macro and the micro, of everything we experience, whether that's the person and how they're operating within the system. Tate's hire will still need to be approved by the Madison Common Council. If he is approved, he would begin his role as Madison's first independent police monitor with an expected salary of $125,000. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wagehout.
0: As the future of social security is debated on the campaign trail, voices from the education community are speaking out about the importance of the benefit. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
6: Wisconsin is one of 33 states that allow Social Security benefits to be extended to teachers. As the future of the program is debated, a retired educator says keeping certainty in place is crucial if the country doesn't want more people leaving the profession. On the campaign trail, some Republican candidates have floated ideas that opponents say would either cut or eliminate the program. John Bigley, a retired middle school teacher from the Rhinelander area, says he did earn a pension. But he adds the extra help from Social Security payments makes retirement less challenging financially, especially during a period of high inflation. We have what we have right now, and it's keeping our head above water and we don't have a lot of stress. But he worries about recipients who don't have other retirement savings. Bigley adds threatening to reduce benefits doesn't help to retain teachers during a national shortage of educators. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson is among those criticized for suggesting program changes. He defends his approach in saying he wants to move it to discretionary spending to enact needed reforms. Alex Lawson of the group Social Security Works says older Americans are especially feeling the weight of higher consumer costs. He argues retired teachers are among the many individuals who deserve to keep the earned benefit after devoting their life to a certain profession.
2: We need to pay teachers more, I'll say that, across the board. But at the same time, we need to ensure that every teacher who's paid in to the system that they don't have to be scared that some politician is going to reach into our pocket and take our benefits away.
6: Teacher advocates say these individuals also face less job security as school districts struggle with budget issues of their own. They argue what teachers earn through Social Security will at least be there if they don't stay on long enough to secure a pension. It's estimated that only one in five teachers in the U.S. go on to receive their full pension benefits. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
1: The fair weather will be sticking around for just one more day before dropping down into some chillier temperatures. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has all the details.
5: The warm weather is looking to continue into tomorrow, but after that, it's looking to drop again. Our current temperatures are sitting at 63 degrees with winds coming from the southeast at 4 miles per hour and the humidity is sitting at 51%. The average temperature for this day over the years has been 62.5 degrees, so we are right above the historical average, with today's highs reaching 68 degrees. The UV index reached 3.5 today, lowering down a lot from what we have been seeing. The same UV is what we will be seeing for the next few days as well. The sun is now not rising until 7.06 a.m. and sets at 6.22 p.m., and as we move further and further into the year, we will continue to lose this daylight. Allergens will not be present into the next two days. And today, the only allergen present was ragweed, which was in the low category. And now a fun fact. Leaves change color due to temperatures and the length of daylight. Chlorophyll breaks down and the green color disappears, turning the leaves into the yellow and orangey colors that we see. Tomorrow's temperatures are looking to be very nice. The high is looking to reach 73 degrees but not until later in the afternoon. High wind speeds will be coming from the south and will reach 15 miles per hour. Tomorrow will be variably cloudy and we will have a chance for rain as the front moves through overnight. Precipitation is looking to continue until Wednesday and will be lingering all day with high humidity and high wind speeds between 10 and 20 miles per hour coming from the west. The high should be reaching 63 degrees and will drop down overnight. Thursday is looking to be frigid with a high temperature of 49 degrees and a low of 34 degrees. High winds will continue from the same speed as Wednesday, and it will also be variably cloudy. Friday is looking to warm up a few degrees from Thursday's high, but will still be variably cloudy with high winds continued. Saturday is looking to reach the higher 50s or lower 60s with lower wind speeds from the previous days. In Madison, with your weather report, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis.
0: It's now 6.19pm and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: Today is National Indigenous Peoples' Day, a day to remember and celebrate the people who lived on this land before European colonialization. If you were walking by the Capitol Square today, you may have seen a teepee erected on the Capitol lawn by Art and Dawn Shagoni. Earlier today, Art and Dawn held a short ceremony to celebrate Indigenous culture here in Wisconsin. WORT producer Nate Weggiehout attended the ceremony and spoke with Art and Dawn after to learn more about why they set up a teepee on the Capitol lawn.
2: So just to just to sort of start things off here, t- tell me a little bit about who you are, who uh, you, Yeah, just tell me a little bit about yourself.
7: Uh, my name is uh, Art Chigone. I'm a member of the Menominee and Potawatomi Nations of Wisconsin, and I'm an elder. And uh, so I'm very honored to be here today on this Indigenous Peoples Day. And so we had uh, people come to erect a, a teepee um, from uh, Walk that came. And so that's why we did this today to uh, to support indigenous people to do something.
2: And and just tell me a little bit about what what happened today. What uh, what did we just sort of do here?
7: Well, we did kind of a a small ceremony in honoring uh, the sacred lands And the treaties and uh, what we do as Native American people, you know, and people don't realize that you know sometimes it's like we get celebrated, you know, as a Native American person. I don't celebrate uh, just one day a week. I celebrate every day of my life, you know, and let people know who and what what we are, you know, that we just we're not all in museums and history books, you know. We're still alive and still doing our parts yet today you know on this continent uh, on this uh sacred land that we call um you know ho-chunk land you know so we need to to still do that and let people know we're still here you know we haven't vanished off the earth like dinosaurs
2: And this uh, teepee here, tell me a little bit about the significance of uh, having this well, teepee on the land.
7: Actually, our, our what uh, Ojibwe would have would be called like a uh, wigwam a structure and stuff, but uh, the teepee is also a representative of Native American people, you know, so that's why it's kind of easier to erect and um, to, to have it because it's easy to get up and easy to take down, you know, and a show a representative.
2: And, and you said that this is uh, possibly the first time that a teepee has been uh, erected on the Capitol grounds, correct? Yes,
7: as far as I know, um, you know, uh, I have to check that out yet. But as far as I know, I don't think there's ever been a Native American teepee on this uh, ground uh, by the Capitol.
2: And, and so this, this is radio, so people can't necessarily uh, see you right now. Can you sort of just uh, describe to me uh, what you're uh, uh, wearing right now and sort of the significance of it?
7: Well, I'm a good-looking Indian. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I made my whole attire. Uh, it's called a regalia. And not a costume because, uh, well, we're around Halloween. But we don't refer it to it as a costume. We refer, refer it to it a, a regalia or a dance outfit. And many of our um, traditional people or indigenous people make their own regalias. And some some of the beadwork is just fantastic. And takes some, you know, I've seen some guy had some cuffs that were beaded. And then I, I saw another... Uh, has uh, other cuffs that he had I said what happened to the cuffs that you had before he goes oh I didn't like them so I took them apart and redid them I'm like oh my gosh I know they were just as beautiful you know so if you're they, their beadwork and stuff is tremendous They're, you know it takes a long time and stuff but it comes from their own hearts and minds of creating what they what they do so well you know and so a lot of our outfits are handmade and we don't buy them from walmart or kmart you know and it's something like our roaches and stuff are handmade everything is uh the roach that i'm wearing is made out of um porcupine and deer hairs you know it's all sewn and together like that to make it and there's different colors and i have a a golden eagle i mean a, a eagle fan. Um, I have a golden eagle fan, but this one here is uh, from from um, uh, just a regular eagle here. And uh, so we get our eagles from the DNR. We don't shoot them or kill them to get the feathers. But we have to be a registered member of a tribe or a na- belong to a tribe or a nation before we get these eagle feathers and stuff. And so it's a long process
2: and now going back to uh what uh the ceremony that we had today can you tell me a little bit about the uh ceremony that you performed the prayer well, that you performed
7: it was, it was just uh, i did some smudge and uh, tobacco and cedar and sweet grass and sage and i lit that smudge and that was to represent that smoke and to to our prayers and then that goes up into the ishpeming up into the heavens and it touches the creator's face the eagles go they they carry that smoke that from this shell onto their wings and they go up into the heavens and they touch the creator's face. And so that's why we say we have a direct connection to the creator, Mama Konono.
2: And then uh, we, you also gave us tobacco to hold in our, our left hands mm-hmm. uh, through the ceremony. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, that?
7: To, uh, we always put the tobacco, we always grab the tobacco in our left hand because that's the closest to our hearts. And so when our, we hold our, our prayers dear and when we put that tobacco by the ground or by a tree for our rel- relatives, or our loved ones, that, uh, so that, that prayers can be let on the ground. I mean, they, when we say our prayers and stuff, we put that tobacco down so that they can be answered and we're giving something back to Mother Earth as well
2: and now tell me a little bit about this event that's happening uh here tomorrow i don't know if you or if uh dawn yeah,
8: my wife, yeah. sure it's going to be um in honor of indigenous people's day um it's the call for peace drum and dance company we've been known in this community for quite a long time we Our company opened the Overture Center, opened Monona Terrace. Um, It represents seven or eight cultures of the world and we've traveled around the world. So now we have an exhibit uh, of the journey and also an exhibit that kind of addresses, you know, what things can lead us to a more sustainable future. Um, So it's a very engaging uh, with multimedia uh, presentation and it'll be tomorrow night at, it's part of this Teach the Truth Wisconsin at the First Unitarian Society on University Bay Drive at 7 p.m. tomorrow night and um, it's the theme is why diversity matters and celebrating the tapestry of humanity ancient wisdom calling for an interconnected future
2: and so just just sort of wrapping things up here do you guys just have any final thoughts of anything that you want people to to just sort of know out there
7: well, thank you for supporting Indigenous Peoples Day and uh, welcome to my country. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, thank you, Art and Don. Thank you so much. You're
4: welcome.
0: The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. A cloudless
1: Saturday afternoon offered the perfect backdrop for the Harvest Folk Festival at Allen Centennial Garden. Packed with music, dancing, food, and cultural reflections, the festival assembled a diverse array of programming. WORT reporter Christopher Cartwright stopped by this weekend to take a closer look you
3: My name is Reba Lukin. I'm the director of Allen Centennial Garden, and I use she, her pronouns. Um, Today we have the Harvest Festival going on here at Allen Centennial, and it's really a celebration of our kitchen garden. Um, We received a donation from the Wyman family and the Wisconsin Potato and Vegetable Growers Association um, to create a new kitchen garden, and so we're going to be breaking ground on that in the next couple weeks. But this summer, we featured three different gardens, a Hmong garden, an African diasporic garden, and a Three Sisters garden, which is an, an indigenous Native American style. Um, and so we have performers from all three of those cultural groups who are out here today, and then some others as well celebrating the harvest like maybe our ancestors would have.
9: So, is this affiliated with the university, or and are our students involved in this?
3: Absolutely, yeah. So, Allen Centennial Garden is here on UW Madison's campus. We're part of the Department of Horticulture. And we've involved students from a lot of different departments. So um, today we have student projects out in the student fair. Um, we have the Hmong American Student Association, as well as some class projects. And we also have a number of students from Religious Studies, History of Science, um, and the JUOP uh, a cappella student group, is also out here today.
5: It's funny
10: writing about things that you make, something you do, and something you believe surrounding fall. And so the idea, we're going to have some conversations about these in a minute, but basically draw and write whatever comes to mind. We got Other side has some examples of stuff.
9: I'm here today with John Walker, a graduate student, helping create this event. Uh, Could you explain what your role is? Uh, Myself and Meriva are
11: creating a space where people who are walking by between the projects that students do and the ceremonies, things that are going on over here, as a way to create a community conversation around what harvest is and uh, what autumn means to different people in the community. Because we have so many different people who are both native to this land, non-native to this land, immigrants. Non-immigrant, and people have so many different ideas about what it means to, to go through harvest time, to go through fall, and we want to represent that. So we're just letting people tell their own stories, and then uh, when people have collected them, we're letting people talk about them with each other because we know that people have different traditions, and sometimes they don't even know it, or they might be extremely similar, but it's that one little thing that you're like, "Wait, your family does this, or you do this." So we're just uh, we're bringing that to light and like celebrating all these uh kind of faces and uh different traditions that we that we want to see
3: in the mung garden we have a number of different herbs all of them are part of a traditional mung chicken soup which is traditionally given to people after they give birth for a number of days. It's one of the meals that they eat and it helps to recover from birth and all of the things that go along with that. And we have a variety of different herbs that are used in that soup. So one of them is lemongrass. That might be more common. But we also have blood leaf, Okinawa spinach, and two different kinds of mugwort and some other things as well that go into um, that soup. And we're also very fortunate to be able to have a chance to taste that soup this afternoon when the campus food truck um, brings some soup that they've made using herbs from our garden.
10: So my name is Mirva Johnson, and I got involved really because I got an email asking if I wanted to help out, and it sounded exactly like something that I'm interested in. Um, my work is in folklore. I'm a PhD student or candidate, and so I wanted to get involved with. Yeah, with running the event and hosting these conversations about what people do, believe, um, and make surrounding fall and harvest and just kind of getting some dialogue going between folks. And yeah, no, and I'm excited. It's a beautiful day. This worked out really well.
9: It really is. Um, could you explain like what kinds of things you've seen people writing down or drawing, like what's?
10: Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, it's, it is really a cool mix. We've gotten a lot of pumpkins, a lot of harvesting and some different planting traditions. We got some pumpkin cannons and a lot of um, hot, warm beverages, a lot of fall changing leaf colors, and. Yeah, it's just, it has been a lot so far. I'm really excited to see what comes next.
0: This Thursday, October 13th, is the anniversary of what was probably history's first recorded strike. The year was 1157 BCE in Egypt. They struck, they sat in, and they won. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story.
1: For Joe Hill and Caesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our
6: brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong.
12: This Thursday, October thirteenth, is the anniversary of what was probably the first recorded strike. The site of the dispute was in ancient Egypt, a town now called Deir el-Madinah. The year was 1157 BCE. The dispute lasted three months. The events were recorded by a local scribe, Amun who may have been one of the strikers under the rule of Ramses III. These were no ordinary workers, they were highly skilled hereditary workers who lived in the village with their families. They were the best craftsmen of Egypt who built the tombs for the pharaohs and their families, in this case Ramses III. Their work was secret. Pharaohs and their families were buried with huge amounts of gold and other valuables, and tomb robbing was a major problem. The village was heavily guarded, as were craftsmen themselves, to make sure they didn't steal anything, but they were treated very well for their time and were relatively prosperous. Their houses had several rooms, including a kitchen with an oven for baking, and some had cellars. Every ten days they could take two days off, and they worked an eight hour day. They could also have time off to brew beer, or mummify a dead friend or relative. In their spare time they could work on their own more modest tombs. Unlike the royal tombs, which were decorated with religious icons, craftsmen's tombs had images showing what their owners hoped for in an afterlife, one much like their own, but better. Despite their status, the work was dangerous and dirty. Many spent their days in small, dark spaces, cutting stone, plastering, or painting. Because it was dark, it was easy to trip, so they had to make sure that the baskets of rubble which they carried out of the tombs did not smudge the fresh paint on the walls and ceilings, because only the most educated and skilled craftsmen were selected for the work de El Malina. Was rare as a village where most of its residents even the women could write they were obsessive daily record keepers they made detailed notes of even the smallest events on bits of pottery and flakes of stone as a result their laundry lists recipes and love letters survive to this day. We have an amazing detailed picture of daily life in Egypt more than 3,000 years ago. The records include local scandal and gossip. Unfortunately, the names of the leaders of the strike and how many workers were involved did not survive. Amenak kept his records on Papyrus, which was damaged over the years. But the record shows the strike occurred during the 29th year of King Ramses III. Workers repeatedly struck, complaining of late and non-existent rations. It is unclear why they didn't get paid. Rations were the form of monthly payments. There is evidence of corruption in the ruling class. There is also evidence of years of famine. One month, when the grain was late, Amun-Acht, an artisan, himself, went to complain to local government authorities. He received partial rations, for the group. Payments were again delayed due to poor, growing conditions, and later that same year, men of two labor crews stopped working and held a sit-in by a local tomb from Amunacht. The workmen left the community, declaring, We are hungry. Almost two weeks had passed, since they should have been paid. Descending down the mountain, they spent the day in peaceful protest, sat behind the temple of the Third, while government officials came out yelling at them to get back to work. Two days later, they again left the village and walked to the temple of Ramses II, spending the night at its entrances. Not only did the lack of rations mean hunger, but they also couldn't use them to trade for other necessities, like clothing and cooking oil. Rations Were provided after each action, but it was just a temporary measure as problems continued. Records show two workmen left in protest, Kanina, son of Ruta, and Hey, son of Huye. This showed how bad conditions were, they said. We will not return, tell your supervisors. Truly, it was not because we hungered that we passed these walls. We have an important statement to make. Truly evil is done in this place of the Pharaoh. The vizier, their mayor, responded that the granaries were virtually empty, but sent half rations. The final strike entry records how the crew left the village again just 2 weeks later, going this time to the temple of Meren-ta. There they encountered the Vizier, who provided rations until aid would come from the Pharaoh. Records show that under future rulers strikes increased in frequency during the years of Ramses the Ninth through Ramses the Eleventh when their reign ended. So the strikes proved an effective technique that helped the workers in this harsh period. The twenty eleven Egyptian strikes played a key role in the overthrow of their oppressive government. Today a new glittering capital is being built by Egyptian workers for new rulers. A pharaoh-like palace is being erected. Can resistance be far behind? And that is our story for today. For The Past is the Past, I'm Harry Richardson.
1: The time now is 6.44 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. It's Monday, which
0: means... It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings happening in Madison and Dane County this week. This week, budget deliberations continue, alcohol comes to Pizza Hut, and police union contract negotiations.
9: Well, hello, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County, and there are no meetings Monday or Tuesday. It's a a little bit of a light week, Uh, but we have that zoo. uh, It's the Henry Vilas Zoo Commission. It's bright and early, 730 on Wednesday. Um, What can you tell us about that? Is there any information?
4: No, it looks the same as usual, um, but a little bit worse because it just says report, and then there's no link to the report, uh-huh. and then there's a mention that they're going to talk about hybrid meetings. But really, it's very hard to tell what they talk about there.
9: One of us is going to have to show up one of these days.
4: Totally. <laughs> we totally Why do. <laughs> does it
9: have to start at 730? I don't, I don't know. That's not a great excuse for us. But All right. Well, why, why don't we talk about the Criminal Justice Council, its pre-trial services subcommittee, which means at 1215 on Wednesday. And that's a virtual meeting.
4: So they'll be talking about um, POS contracts, which that means that anybody that they contract with, uh, most of the nonprofits that they contract with. So they'll be talking about uh, contracts for pretrial services. Oh, they'll also okay. uh, do an update on community engagement and community conversations, as well as the hiring process for pretrial services director.
9: What's going on? Uh, I believe it's Thursday in terms of the the Dane County Board. They're having an executive committee session where they're going to be offering amendments to the both the operating and the capital budget, right?
4: Yeah, at 530, the ENER committee or the Environment, Agriculture and Nature- Natural Resources is going to ha- be having their um, potential amendments to the budget. At 5.30, also Health and Human Needs is looking at amendments that they might have. And then the Executive Committee as well at 5.30. So um, looks like they're, they're doing a lot. Um, they're mostly looking at what amendments the committee members would have. Last week, most of them got presentations from each of the departments so they could hear what uh, was presented to the county executive. Um, and now they're looking at the county executive's budget to find out what um, amendments they might want to make.
9: So uh, just so comparisons say city of Madison and Dane County don't always work exactly the same, but the the Dane County executive like the mayor puts forth an executive budget and then it gets revised by the County board. Is that how it works?
4: Um, Yeah. So the, one of the big differences is at the city level, everything goes directly to the finance committee and they're the ones that make some initial amendments and then present that to the common council for approval. Um, At the County board level, each of the committees, uh, the the standing committees of the county board, look at only their portions of the budget. So Health and Human Needs will look at the Health and Human Needs or the Human Services Department budget. Uh, the PPNJ committee will look at the sheriff's budget, the... Um, juvenile detention budget, and, and things that are related to public protection and judiciary. So each of those committees, um, the supervisors are on those committees. They look at what types of amendments they would like to make, and then that goes forward to the county board. Usually has one big package that the personnel and finance committee puts together.
9: Well, let's move on to the city of Madison. And happening right now, uh, it got started at 5 p.m., is the Landmarks Commission. So they have a few properties that they're taking a look at, right?
4: They do. Most of them seem to be over in um, the Willie Street, Jennifer Street area. So there's one, though, that is at 415 North Lake Street. um, That is a um, development that's going to go up next to uh, uh, Madison Landmark. And then there's projects at 1135 and 1311 Jennifer Street, as well as 826
9: and 933 Williamson. Why don't we go to kind of the... Uh, I don't want to say the most important, but a very important uh, meeting happening this week, and that's, of course, the Common Council is meeting. They first have a meeting of the executive committee at 4.30 before the full council meets at 6.30. This is on Tuesday. The
4: 4.30 meeting is virtual. Um, It is a subcommittee of the executive committee. Oh, okay. So they are looking at, this is just looking at a code of conduct for the council.
9: Oh, like be really Um, careful when joining far-right militias
4: yeah right <laughs> just
9: we want to we want to avoid that like you want to know what you're getting into before you sign up for something like that
4: yeah and then the next one is it i believe it's a hybrid it i think they
9: um well let's hope it's a hybrid
4: on the agenda as yeah. hybrid but um when you look on the clerk site it's just virtual
9: okay well what is the full common council um up to then
4: you know they don't have a whole lot on their agenda that's um you know, probably going to get a lot of attention. There's, Brenda, a um,
9: Pizza um, Hut is getting an alcohol license. Let's right, not diminish exactly. it.
4: Exactly. They have alcohol licenses in development, which is a lot of what they do. Um, and then um, after those, there's, um, you know, they have a few things on their agenda. Um, Greg Michaels uh, is getting confirmed as the five years for the library director. Okay. Um, They're also looking at. Um, uh, I guess the contract for um, Mach 1 Health to continue running the oh, drug j- you don't is have up. anything
9: to do with that one, I'm sure.
4: <laughs> right, <laughs> as well as Porchlight um is being chosen to run the new men's shelter. Nobody else applied to do that as well. One thing that people might be interested in is the labor agreement between. Um, the Police Officers Association and the City of Madison, that is up. And that's, you know, this is the one time that, you know, if you really want to look at where the money is going, a lot of it is determined in this uh, police union contract. So folks might want to take a look at that. Um, And then there's a few other things, lots of personnel items that are on that board on that. And then there's lots of things about, Madison Metro and um, the Bus Rapid Transit, lots of contracts being signed for various portions of that. And there is $2.1 million in TIF going into our project at 2930 and 3030 Omeda Drive.
9: I don't even know where that is. The 16th District, it looks like.
4: Yeah, probably far outskirts of the city, most likely.
9: (laughs) And that police contract is interesting because just how the city of Madison currently, you know, they can negotiate in full faith with um, the police and fire, but they can't with, and metro drivers, but they can't with um, most city employees. So there's some parity things that kick in. So all these are connected. So reaching a deal with the cops means reaching a deal with a bunch of other agents or a bunch of other workers, too.
4: Yeah, they used to call it Me Too, but yes. it, it is definitely one of those things where when they make this sort of decision with these groups, then that it usually carries over to the rest yes. of the Yes,
9: a different Me Too movement. So we need to yes, come up
12: definitely. with very <laughs>
9: different. Okay, what about um, uh, something else you know quite a bit about? It's the Public Safety Review Committee, which you're on. I think believe that's at 5 p.m. on Wednesday.
4: We'll be looking at um, some a, a grant that they normally get um, to do the yeah. Isthmus Safety Initiative. Um, and we're going to be looking at the... Um, SOP, the Standard Operating Procedure, for um, open records requests oh, cool. uh, and how they reveal the records to the rest of the city. Um, I'm particularly interested because um, some media seem to be able to skip ahead of the line and get their records requests met sooner than others, and so I- I'm interested in that. Plus, Police Chief Barnes is also going to be talking about the data dashboard. He's got a, an idea about a new way that he would be like to be looking at uh, crime statistics for the city of Madison. Um, and so he'll be presenting on okay. that. Okay,
9: Well, he promised that when he came in is something he was going to really spearhead. So I'll be interested to see what he has to say about that.
4: He did. You know, one thing we might want to go back to is the yeah. Early design commission. Yeah, let's just do it. I just wanted to quick mention that um, the jail is up for... Oh, you're yeah.
9: kidding. At 4.30? In front
4: of- yeah. 4.30, it's also a virtual meeting. Um, there's a few other items on there on Portage Road, Zora Shrine. Uh, East Washington and McKee Road. Well, what are they but approving? The big one that I think people might be interested in is the um, the South Tower addition to the Public Safety Building.
9: Well, but they don't. the The county hasn't sorted out how they're paying for any of that, right?
4: Right. So it's hmm. interesting that it was up. I was surprised to see it.
9: At some point, they're going to have to make a decision.
4: Yeah, definitely.
9: <laughs> Thank you, Brenda, for giving us a preview of uh, what's ahead this week, so we can all be more informed about local government. We really appreciate it.
4: Thanks Dylan.
1: Today feature contributor Harry Richardson has two new movie reviews. On the big screen is The Greatest Beer Run Ever, based on a true story set in 1967 Vietnam. On the small screen, Vesper, an independent dystopian sci-fi film out of Europe. Harry calls it a bleak, well-written film with a hopeful ending.
12: Do these protesters not know? that our soldiers see that on TV? I'd like to go over to
4: Vietnam, track down all the boys in the neighborhood and give them a beer. I could do that. Do what? Bring in beer.
12: That was clipped from the trailer for The Greatest Beer Run Ever, co-written and directed by Peter Farley. It's based on the book of the same name by John Chicky Donahue and J.T. Malloy. The movie stays pretty close to the real story here, incredible as that may sound. Our story starts with Chicky Donahue an able Zac Ephron, doing what he does best, holding down a bar stool at his neighborhood bar in a working-class Inwood in Upper Manhattan, New York City. It's 1967 and Chicky and his friends are holding forth on the Vietnam War, those terrible war protesters and why they only show the bad side of the war on the TV. The comments of the bartender, a vet nicknamed the colonel, a serious Bill Murray, are especially pointed. This portrayal of the war and our guys would not fly in my day. He says the neighborhood boys going over there and in some cases not coming back are heroes. He doesn't understand the protesters either. Don't they know our guys are seeing them doing this? The rest of the crew at the bar agrees. Then the colonel says spontaneously, you know what I'd like to do I'd like to go over there and give each one of our guys in the neighborhood a beer and thank them for what they're doing. General agreement ensues and Chickie pipes up. I can do that. And he could. He's a merchant marine. He could sign up for a ship taking supplies to Vietnam, but none of his friends take him seriously. It seems Chicky, who did a stint in the peacetime marines, is just biding his time living at home and hasn't shipped out in months while the neighborhood kids are dying in Vietnam. So none of his friends take him seriously, but he goes to check on ships going out and finds one is leaving in three hours and needed a boiler, his specialty. He takes that as a sign and ships off with a duffel bag full of beer, mostly Pat's Blue Ribbon, PBR, with six names and locations of guys from the neighborhood. That list goes down to four, one is killed, and another was sent home after getting malaria. When he gets to Vietnam, our story takes off. Chicky goes in search of his friends and finds out the truth of Vietnam is more complex than he thought there are a couple of significant differences between the movie and real life. In the movie, Chicky has only 72 hours to find his friends. In real life, it took four months, which actually seems more realistic. And his sister Christine, well played by Ruby Ashbourne, didn't object to the trip. She only found out about it afterwards. Also, the Russell Crowe character an American photographer Chicky meets and is befriended by is made up. Ironically, Crowe is one of the movie's more believable characters. All in all, a pretty good movie. It's playing locally as at several theaters. Check it out soon. I don't think it'll be in town for too long. Next up, a new post-apocalyptic movie on the small screen.
6: You know, we are so alike, you and I. Vespa. Because we won't let this world crush us. But don't think that you can change the order of things.
12: That was a clip from the trailer for Vesper, a new European indie sci-fi movie written and directed by Kristina Bosite and Bruno Samper. Bosite is from Lithuania and her co-writer and co-director is French. This is a well-done film with convincing world-building with minimal special effects. The story is the main thing here. It's a gray world after an unspecified disaster has wiped out half of the human race and the bio-engineered plants escaped into the wild and made things worse, not better. The remaining elites, suck up most of the wealth inside the citadels, while everyone else barely scrapes by, living in hovels. The citadel controls genetically engineered crops that produce infertile seeds, kind of like if Monsanto took over after the apocalypse. Enter Vesper, Raffaella Champin, a thirteen-year-old who is curious about the world, and with the aid of her father, who is now paralyzed, Darius richard brake has built her own makeshift lab but she has to find what she can out in the swampy muck for them to survive including grubs and fungus nothing that looks very appetizing her creepy uncle jonas eddie marson on the other hand seems to be doing fairly well overseeing a group of submissive kids he harvests their blood regularly for the elite in the Citadel. The rulers seem to have a constant need for blood. At one point, Jonas pressures Vesper into contributing in exchange for some electricity. Her home's power source has been mysteriously tampered with. Vesper, on her travels, is accompanied by her father, sort of. He's able to see and hear her through a kind of basketball-sized device that flies alongside her. But then Vesper and her dad find a young girl, a little older than Vesper, Camellia Rosie McEwan. Camellia has been injured. Vesper comes to her aid despite her father's urging that it isn't their concern. Camellia, it turns out, is from the Citadel, but is not what she seems. She promises to reward Vesper for her help. You can see where this is going, but there's some interesting twists and turns along the way to a fairly believable and hopeful ending. A very absorbing film with a good cast and convincing world-building. Well, worth watching. It recently came out on Voodoo and other streaming services. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Christopher Cartwright. Thanks to Mike Moen and the Wisconsin News Connection. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis special thanks to feature contributors harry richardson brenda conkle and dylan brogan and nicholas leedy for technical production chuck kateman engineered this show nate weghout produced this newscast and Shally pitman is the news director at wort i'm your host sean bull and i'm your host sam swartz
1: up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial the access hour have a great night